Welcome to Colorado College. I'm Walt Hecox. I teach in both the Economics Department and the Environmental Science Program. I'm also the Faculty Director of the Colorado College State of the Rockies Project. And tonight is our third in a series of four talks on concerning energy issues and challenges in the Rockies. We've loosely stitched these together under the title Energizing the Rockies, Energy Challenges, and Global, National, and Regional Perspectives. And all of these talks are sponsored jointly by the Carter College State of the Rockies Project and the Schlesman Business Perspectives Program. I'd especially like to thank Bob Kerwin, the CC's new Director of Communications, for organizing these talks as well as the rest of the Rockies Conference, which is coming up in April. Since the monthly series speaker is new, this is our fourth year in the Rockies Project, but we've never done a monthly series like this, I'd like to give you just a little bit of background. The Rockies Project attempts each year to provide thoughtful, objective voices on regional issues based on credible research on problems facing our eight-state Rockies region. And after convening students to do research in the summer, and we're just about to pick those students for summer of 2007, we then work almost all year on the publication, which is about to go to the printer in two weeks. And then the conference occurs every year in April, and we attempt to have that serve as dialogue, as is this series of four different energy topics. Energy is an issue which affects all of us, and all we need to do is to think about the gyrations in energy prices. I could say that we can remember a year ago energy being about $3. We can remember a week ago energy being 25 cents less than it is now. And these have very vital impacts on the Rockies, not only in how we get to work and what it costs, but because we are one of the nation's storehouses for many kinds of energy, it affects the drilling, the refining, the transmission. And so we really are at the center of a wild ride, I believe. The national demands for abundant energy resources underpin the resource boom which we're witnessing. I think it's just beginning to crank up. The questions we want to ask in this series, what role is appropriate for the Rockies in the US, as the U.S. seeks less dependence on foreign energy supplies? How are global and national conditions affecting us? When and how might renewables kick in and conservation actually be adopted by people who will flip the light switch off? The April 2007 report card will have a section on energy, and in that particular section, we're going to look at the impact of the Rockies' energy boom on small communities. There are many other impacts of the energy boom we could look at, but we're interested in the impacts on Rifle, uh, Grand Junction, Pine, Dale, other places that are being hammered, both by a boom where perhaps the Chamber of Commerce loves it, but there's also a zero occupancy rate, uh, property taxes are going up fast, and it's very difficult for people who've lived there a long time to survive in those communities. Our first speaker was Rebecca Watson, who was formerly with the Department of Interior and talked about the role of federal leasing because the federal government, for good or bad, is very vital to our lives out in the Rockies. And in January, Raymond Plank came and talked as an energy producer. In March, Matt Simmons, actually next Monday, Matt Simmons, chairman and CEO of Houston-based Simmons & Company International, an investment bank specializing in the energy industry, will come to talk, and he's the author of a controversial book, Twilight in the Desert, The Coming Saudi Oil Shock in the World Economy. And Matt was with my class two days last week. He'll be with my class two days next week. So the energy series is wrapped uh, 
very closely into what we're doing in our class. Tonight's speaker has been chosen to address an issue which is vital to, temp to tempering the energy boom, and that is renewables. Randy Udall is the Executive Director of the Community Office of Resource Efficiency, or CORE, in Aspen. CORE is a nonprofit organization that promotes energy efficiency and renewable energy and has done so since 1994. It works in partnership with Holy Cross Elect Energy, a rural electrical utility that serves 40,000 customers. Holy Cross leads the U.S. in the percentage of the customers who buy wind power. In 1998, CORE started the first solar production incentive program in the United States. The program pays customers who install PV systems 25 cents per kilowatt hour for their energy. Holy Cross has more grid-connected photovoltaic systems than any of the 930 rural electric utilities in the nation. In 2000, CORE started the nation's first renewable energy mitigation fund, which has collected a million dollars in building permit fees to install renewable energy systems. From 1982 until joining CORE, Randy Udall was a freelance writer specializing in environmental and related scientific topics, including energy efficiency, green buildings, acid rain, groundwater depletion, energy, clean air, global warming, and biodiversity. He has also edited a quarterly newsletter the Rocky Mountain of the Rocky Mountain Institute and has been a freelance writer in a variety of publications, including National Wildlife, Audubon Outside, Sierra, the Denver Post, and the Los Angeles Times. He serves on the board of directors of the Solar Energy International and Colorado Renewable Energy Society. Randy's talk tonight is titled, Renewable Energy Possibilities Offsets to Traditional Sources. Please help me welcome Randy. Well, thank you. <clears throat> uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Walt, for that introduction. Um, I got up real early this morning, so I'm a little groggy. Um, but let's get into this and, and just talk about energy a minute. I, I <clears throat> and I'm going to address most of my comments tonight to anybody under 25. Um, my daughter, my daughter, who's a junior here at CC, emailed me. She said, Dad, not to put any pressure on you, but I've invited a bunch of my friends to come hear you, so don't embarrass me. So, so my goal tonight is simply not to embarrass my daughter. Um, there was a curious article in High Country News a few months ago. Uh, it said, just add water. In Arizona last year, 84,000 homes have sprouted from the desert. And it got me thinking uh, about we Americans and, and who we've become with respect to energy. Uh, this article featured this developer. Um, and this man looks very competent and capable, um, dedicated, intent. And he's saying people nationally will look at this as an example of how to do development right. Um, now, I, I think this guy is insane, um, and, and let me explain why. But I think his insanity is a reflection of who we've become as Americans with respect to energy. Here's what he wants to do. He, he wants to put 80,000 people in a new city 40 miles west of Phoenix in the most arid, desolate, um, God-forsaken desert in North America. 
And he's proclaiming that because there's demand for these houses, that this will be seen in future years as a way to do development right. Now, why, why is he in sync? He might be perfectly in sync with his market. So why am I saying he's insane? The people that are gonna come live here are gonna come with the expectation of living like gods. They're gonna come with the expectation of not producing any of their food or providing any of their energy or harvesting any of their rainwater. They're coming with the expectation that if they have enough money, all of these fundamental resources will flow to them as if they were gods. I think this is what's happened in the United States since about 1940, is gradually and without noticing it, we've begun to live like gods. One of my favorite writers is a guy named Lauren Isley, and he writes that man's long adventure with knowledge has been a climb up the heat ladder. The creature that crept furred through the glitter of blue glacial nights now lives surrounded by the hiss of steam and the roar of engines, and he is himself a flame, a great roaring furnace. We're on the Great Plains. We're on the edge of the Great Plains. And if you roll the clock back 300 years, you know, and begin asking this question, how did we come to live like gods? Um, the Sioux, they, you could not be raised as a Native American here on these grasslands without understanding your energy economy. It was very simple. Sunlight, grass, bison, Sioux. Sunlight, grass, bison, Sioux. It was totally sustainable. They lived off sunlight and firewood and the meat of bison. So it was easy for them to understand and they identified with that cycle. They put bison skulls on and masks on and they did dances and they had rituals to honor this relationship that they had with these animals. And ask yourself, is there a ritual that Americans have that recognizes our relationship to any form of energy? You know, we go to the toot and moo or the come and go or the 7-Eleven and we buy 25 gallons of gasoline, which is as much work as two grown men can do in a year for 30 or 40 or 50 or $60, and we bitch about the cost. Now, throughout human history, people have been living off of renewable energy. They've been farming the sun, and there are many ways to do this. You can do it by hunting bison. You can do it by growing rice. You can do it by fishing the open ocean. You can do it by grazing cattle and sheep. Um, and that was a different world, a very different world. And I think it may be why some of us like going out and doing primitive, sort of semi-primitive activities like backpacking or snowboarding. Um, <laughs> uh, if snowboarding is an activity rather than an addiction. Um, anyway, in this old world, the whole world was run on muscle power, the muscle power of either human muscle or domesticated animals. And of the human muscle power, anthropologists have studied this all around the world, and they've concluded that about 75% of all the human work done on the planet was done by women. Now, this tradition of women doing the bulk of the work <laughs> is, is very much alive and well. But, but every few centuries, 
some men show up that are interested in doing some work. They're very unusual. They're rarities. Um, and the Wright brothers are fascinating. Neither of these guys went to college. Uh, but in the space of three or four years, a hundred years ago, they unlocked the mystery of how to preserve dynamic stability in flight. And this is a very challenging thing, and they did it without killing themselves. Now, this is 1905, so this is just a hundred years ago, and they had never flown over water before. Human beings had never flown before. This, this was considered a marvel. New York City stopped this day. And they've stitched the muslin onto these wings that they've shaped themselves. They built the engine in this plane themselves upstairs in their bicycle shop. And because they had never flown over water before, uh, they strap a canoe to the bottom of this plane in, the, in, in case of an inadvertent water landing. <laughs> now, we hear a lot about Yankee ingenuity, but this is the real, there is something very, very real about Yankee ingenuity. And I'll argue later on tonight that we're going to need every ounce of it going ahead. And then American history just unfolds quite rapidly from there. Lindbergh flies the uh, Atlantic, and he's met by 15,000 Frenchmen in Paris, 1927. He's met as if he were a god. He'd flown the ocean. And then 11 years later, Amelia tries to fly the entire world. Okay, And she's still a heroine to many generations of young American women today. And this blew me away to read this, DIA, DIA. As recently as 1975, 80% of Americans had never flown commercially on a jet aircraft. Today, 8 million flights carry 600 million passengers each year. This next thing is an animation of one day's air travel in the United States, each line being a single flight. So five of the ten largest, busiest airports in the world are in our country. And we often hear that 4% of the world's people were using a quarter of the world's energy, which is true. But it's equally true that 4% of the world's people, a quarter of the world's economic activity is happening in the United States. So in the space of 80 years, 90 years, a century, you know, what, what has happened now is that every man is Lindbergh. And every woman is Amelia. You know, we've all become gods with respect to energy. And we've created this marvelous civilization whose energy appetites are just astonishing. If you talk about it on a per capita, how much energy does it take to run the United States each day uh, on a per capita basis? It's the energy equivalent per person of 100 pounds of coal per person per day. Or, 1,000 cubic feet of natural gas per person per day, or eight gallons of gasoline per person per day, or one lightning bolt's worth of energy per person per day. Lance Armstrong uh, never rode the tour naked, but um, <laughs> he was in his prime. He was arguably uh, the world's most powerful human being, just thinking of him as a machine, a human machine. And I emailed his coach. I said, well, how strong is Lance Armstrong? I was curious. How powerful he is, is he? And he wrote me back. He said, Lance has a top end of 1,200 watts. 
he can only do that for 20 seconds. But going uphill, he can maintain 500 watts for 30 minutes, something no one else in the world can do. Now, what's the take home here? The world's most powerful human being can't run your hairdryer, can't run your toaster. If we graph human, human energy use over time, we get a graph like this with, with the Sioux off to the left and soccer mom off to the right. Um, and what I find most remarkable about this is not that we're using 100 times more energy today per person than we were using in 1850, but that we think of this as totally normal. Soccer mom and soccer dad have absolutely no idea that they're living in a way that's wholly unprecedented in the planet's long, long history. And, and so why? why? Why do they have no idea? Well, there was an eight-fold expansion in world oil supplies from 1950 to the year 2000. When the GIs came home at the end of World War II, the, US was the whole world was running on 10 million barrels a day. Two-thirds of it was produced in the United States. And since that time, it's increased to about 80 million barrels a day. So between 1950 and the year 2000, there was an eight-fold expansion in petroleum that provides about 40% of the world's energy. You should come hear Matt Simmons next week on Monday. He's an excellent speaker, brilliant guy. Uh, you won't be disappointed. And that flush of oil, that flush of petroleum, um, and that oil in combination with this intriguing, addictive, form of mobility, the car, it, it, it took us somewhere. It took us somewhere as a people. And you can see it in this woman's face. I love this ad because for me, it, it sort of encapsulates all aspects of the American dream. I mean, what are they selling here? Lung cancer, right? But, but, uh, but no, they're selling the American dream here. Rollerblades and fast food and 56 Chevys. And you look at this woman's face. She's been liberated. She's in a reverie. Right? She has freedom. Human beings have been looking for perpetual motion for tens of thousands of years, and all of a sudden, petroleum gave it to us after World War II. Now, the reverie ended. It's under attack. That reverie is under attack. It may have ended on 9-11. Katrina gave it another big blow. And I'm not sure that we're ever going to think about energy quite as, uh, quite as we did when that ad was produced. Um, so these hurricanes came through the Gulf of Mexico two years ago. Now, the Gulf of Mexico produces a quarter U.S. oil and natural gas. And it's full of large drilling rigs and platforms, production platforms. This is a billion-dollar BP platform called Thunder Horse before the storm and the same platform after the storm. So dozens of drilling platforms were sunk. Uh, this is the reason that your heating bills, not this winter, but the year before, were so high. Some of them vanished. Uh, this platform they, has cost them hundreds of millions of dollars and will hopefully be back on production next year. And after the hurricanes, uh, Oprah said those storms were biblical. 
And I think she was on to something. It wasn't just the destruction they wrought, the, the drowning of a large American city, which is surprisingly almost gone sort of unnoticed. You know, we sort of, I, I mean, it's been noticed, but you know, we lost a whole city to that hurricane. And, and, and then Chevron said something interesting. She said, Chevron, it's a letter from the president of Chevron saying it took us 125 years to use the first trillion barrels of oil. We'll use the next trillion in 30. And then in fine print, so why should you care? And then the letter is a letter to citizens saying energy will be one of the defining issues of the coming century. Every citizen of the planet must be part of the solution. Now, I found this really intriguing. You can think about this ad campaign as cynical. Uh, they didn't want anybody to assess windfall, windfall profit taxes on them. But I find it intriguing because it's the first time that anybody has spoken to Americans, spoken truth to power. You know, the president said we're addicted to oil. I think the, most, the thing that worries me is it seems like we're allergic to truth when it comes to energy. We are a tribe ourselves. Um, after 9-11, we learned a lot about these exotic people in Central Asia, the Pashtuns and the Uzbeks and the Tajiks, these nomads. But we're the world's most exotic tribe. We're the oil tribe. We're consuming our body weight in petroleum products now, each one of us in the United States, each week. 140 pounds of petroleum products per person per week. Now, that includes your share of the Department of Defense and Commerce and and industry's use of oil. But if you just do the math, that's what it works out to be. So let's talk about oil for a minute. This is a chart of Pennsylvania oil production. On the left, we have 1859. And so all of this oil production until about 1900, cars hadn't been invented. And that would have displaced energy from a large marine mammal, right? That's the energy. That's the reason we have whales still on the planet today, is that we found this rock oil in Pennsylvania in 1859. Now, you can go to Walmart, and the most popular brand of oil comes in a yellow bottle, right? It's Penn's oil, right? And then there's another popular brand, green bottle, Quaker State. Well, the Quaker State is Pennsylvania. So everything in blue here is gone, right? Now, Pennsylvania still produces a little oil. We've left a little bit for the college students here today. It's this little triangle at the right. Now, Pennsylvania was not an important oil state, but Texas really was. Texas had more oil than all but 10 countries on the planet. And, and this oil produced before Texas oil production peaked in 1972. That's the oil that won World War II. We had oil, the Japanese and the Germans did not. But you can see that Texas oil production peaked 35 years ago. And Texas, which at one time was one of the world's great oil provinces and still is one of the leading American producers, no longer produces enough oil to run Texas today. They're not self-sufficient in petroleum anymore. I was giving a talk in Oklahoma, and I wanted to make everyone understand what it means when two-thirds of something is gone. <laughs> and, and, I don't know why that's funny, but um, <laughs> so, so this is our petroleum dilemma. If you think of the original oil endowment of the United States as a six-pack, four of the cans have been used. 
and all succeeding generations, my generation, your generation, my children, your children, your grandchildren, we have to share those remaining two cans. And, and we have not begun to have an honest dialogue about what this means. So as we produce less in the United States, we import more. We need five of these a day now. This is two million barrels coming in. We need one of these every five hours. That's, that's the energy cost of living like gods. And this is what Matt's going to talk about next week, I, I think. He may talk about something else, but this is what he's well known for. So each of the large green splotches on this map is a large giant oil field. There are 40 of them on this map. We found two in North America. This is the world's largest oil field here in Saudi Arabia, the largest gas field in the world there. So this is just an accident of history. And, and the, tensions, the tensions on this map are so tectonic, they're just rifting, rifting the world apart. And the tensions are geopolitical and economic and religious. And, and uh, you know, I, I mean, these are the countries that are in the newspaper every day now. Iran off to the right, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, where we fought a war 15 years ago, Iraq, Palestine, and Israel are just off this map to the left. Now, this dilemma, this petroleum dilemma, is not just an American one. It's a German one, Japanese one, Chinese one. As time goes on, if you're in, interested in buying oil, a greater and greater percentage of it has to come from this region. China was a net oil exporter until a decade ago, but they've gone from bicycles to motor scooters to cars. It would be fascinating to visit China. Um, some of you have been there. What, what a remarkable transition that country has gone through. And if we do not become smarter about energy, at the very mouth of the Persian Gulf is this narrow strait called the Strait of Hormuz. It's uh, 75 feet deep and about 25 miles wide. And the top of it, that's Iran at the top, right? And, you know, a huge and growing percentage of the world's oil has to go through this strait. So the future course of history in one scenario can just hinge, just pivot on activities that happen inside the Persian Gulf or right here, the Strait of Hormuz. Let me just briefly talk about climate before I say a few things about renewable energy. You, young people are living in a really interesting time. Half of all the oil that human beings have ever consumed has been used since about 1985. So since you were born, Half of all the oil that people have ever used has been produced since you were born. And half of all the carbon that we've put into the atmosphere has been produced since about 1960, 1970, in that period of time. This carbon problem is, fascinates me. I mean, it's a huge problem. It'll, it'll preoccupy the next five generations of human beings. Um, it's some political scientists have said it's the perf perfect problem with no solution. Um, if we can solve this problem, if we can solve the energy problem, of which this is a piece, then prosperity will endure, has a chance of enduring for centuries and spreading. And if we don't, then I don't think those two statements are correct. Now, the heart of the carbon problem, 
is that this is a very long-lived gas. Most things human beings put into the atmosphere fall out within a week or two. Socks and knocks, some of these trace pollutants from power plants, they fall out. Stuff volcanoes put into the atmosphere falls out within a year or two, even if it's inject, injected very high. But half of the CO2 that we put into the atmosphere will be there 100 years. Okay, And so there's still some of the CO2 that Amelia's plane put into the atmosphere in 1937 is still, still in the air today. Some of it will be there forever. And, and what that means is that each generation of human beings is inheriting the emissions of all people that have come before them. So you children have inherited your, the emissions of your grandparents and your parents and your children will inherit not only yours, but theirs also. And, and this stuff just builds. So this level of CO2 in the atmosphere now is 20% higher than when I was born. It's growing quite rapidly now. Uh, a typical family in the United States heating and cooling their house will produce enough CO2 to fill a Goodyear blimp. And then they'll fill a second Goodyear blimp driving their cars. So it's about a pound a mile for a typical American automobile, carbon dioxide. When you buy $100 worth of electricity here in Colorado Springs, you're buying about uh, 1,600 pounds of carbon dioxide. Comes kind of bundled with it. And half of it will still be in the air a century from now. I was interested at my own house. You know, scientists say, man, we've got to get these carbon emissions way down. So I was interested. This is a passive solar house I built in Carbondale. And I did a little emissions inventory on it. It was producing 20,000 pounds a year. I was astonished. It was all electric, and our electricity was largely coal-fired. And so I ran the numbers, 20, more than 100 pounds a day. I mean, it was, it was blowing me away how much, uh, how much CO2 this thing was producing. And so I said, well, Know, what could you do to cut this by 70%? So these solar electric, I did an efficiency retrofit inside, and then uh, these solar electric panels are keeping about 7,000 pounds of carbon dioxide out of the air each year. The solar hot water system my daughter Ren, who is also an alum here, uh, keeps another 7,000 pounds out a year. And so these, this stuff cost me about you know $18,000, these two systems, and the stuff I did inside, saving me about seven or $800 a year. And it's keeping about 15,000 pounds of carbon dioxide out of the air each year. Now we still, my family still produces a lot of this gas. What's left now are our car miles, right? Our traveling. And that's the living like God's thing. That's this mobility spree that we're on. We're building some affordable houses in our valley. Here, this sunshade on the right is a solar hot water heater. We're trying to build a little house. It's about 1,200 square feet that you could heat, cool, and operate for about $2 a day. It ended up costing us about $2.50 a day to run this building. Very interesting process. And if you think about how we're designing buildings now, most buildings in the United States are parasites. Uh, the minute they're completed, we wheel them into intensive care. We hook them up to the grid and the gas line, and they just, they're helpless. If the power goes out, if there's an ice storm or a tornado, or an avalanche, or any other reason, they're just, they just die, they freeze. It's crazy. We know how to build much more efficient buildings, and we've begun building them not only you know, throughout Colorado now, there's a lot of talk about this. 
China. Um, the, the climate challenge is a coal challenge. It, it's a fossil fuel challenge, but coal dominates the fossil fuels. Um, and the Chinese this year will burn twice as much coal as we're burning in the United States. They'll do about two billion tons. We'll do about a billion tons. And so if you're going to address the climate problem, you've got to find a cleaner way of burning coal, a way of using coal that doesn't put CO2 into the atmosphere. And there's a lot of brilliant science now looking at this. Can we do this? Because coal is the world's most widely distributed and cheapest fossil fuel. A um, hundred of these trains come out of Wyoming each day now. Some of them come down here to your power plants in the springs. And there was a Wyoming politician a hundred years ago who said, Wyoming boasts enough coal to weld every tie that binds, drive every wheel, change the North Pole into a tropical region, or smelt all hell. And it's true. Wyoming, one county in Wyoming, produces more coal than all but three nations on the planet. The Rockies are loaded up with fossil fuels like a pinata. But we also have the world's best wind resource, with some of the world's best wind resources, and probably the best solar resource in North America, in our region. And so one of our challenges is to begin using these renewable resources at rates much, much larger than we've used them in the past. And if we don't, the emerging climate science says that if we don't get after this climate problem, then Florida goes from this to this. This might take two centuries. It might take three centuries. It might take 140 years. But at some point in the coming century, because there are these huge lags in the climate system, at some point in the coming century, we will have condemned Florida. So this, you can argue, this is a national security issue. This is a, you know, we've never lost that kind of territory to any foreign enemy in the United States history. So here's the dilemma, and it's something that I've, I've wrestled with a lot, um, that these things are the basis of prosperity. Fossil fuels invented prosperity but burning them produces carbon dioxide. You have some in your lungs right now. It's not toxic. It's not a pollutant in the classic sense of the term. But we've got to cut these emissions during a century when they would otherwise double or triple. And the brightest people in the world are wrestling with this. You can go on the internet now and you can find Nobel chemists at Caltech and MIT and Rice all over the world saying, how are we going to do this? And EPRI is the Electric Power Research Institute. They argue we need to get much more efficient with how we use energy. We need massive deployment of lower emitting technologies, nuclear, carbon capture and sequestration if we use coal, wind, solar, all the renewables, everyone you can think of. I, earlier I mentioned that the Sioux guy could understand his energy basis. This is your energy basis, and so it's not surprising that you can't understand it. Um, you could spend a whole semester, uh, we'll have a little pop quiz on this graph uh, later on tonight, but this, this is basically, if you think of the United States as a big animal, and you uh, 
you dissected it. This, this is the energy patterns that keep that animal alive. And so the, the green bars on the bottom, um, this is petroleum imports, petroleum we produce, coal, natural gas. And you ask yourself, you say, what is sustainable? What is sustainable in this energy system? And you're struck by, A, how little of it is sustainable. You can argue that the nuclear and the hydro and the biomass, those three top things, red, blue, and purple, those are sustainable. But really, there's nothing else on here that is. And the other thing that jumps out at you, that, that's such a piece of good news once you understand it, is how much waste there is. The green bar, or the, the gray bar at the top right of this, you can't read it because this is fuzzy. It says lost energy. So that's all the energy that's wasted, that comes into the economy that's wasted. And if you look in the transportation sector, this is how much useful energy we get out of all the petroleum we're fighting these wars for. That'll go away in a minute, I think. Um, and this is how much we waste here. So about 55, 60% of the energy that comes into the economy is wasted. And this is an opportunity because this is an energy source we can mine as we go ahead. Now some of these losses are just due to laws of physics. But you can see in the electric sector how much, about two-thirds of all the energy that goes into the electric sector is lost. And so we ought to be saving electricity because it's largely coal produced and we get more bang for our buck there. Electricity and oil. We need more efficient cars, better ways of producing electricity, much cleaner produce, uh, technologies to produce electricity. Efficiency is really interesting to think about. And here's one example. It turns out that human beings aren't very good when it comes to efficiency. This is the evolution of the bicycle. Now, why a man would invent something like we have on the upper left is a bit of mystery to me. This was something that you just kind of rode astride. Um, and then, then he figured out, this guy, you know, 50, 60 years later, he figured out, well, if I put pedals on it, then I can sit there and I can be a dignified gent. And then bicycles went through an SUV phase on the upper right here, <laughs> where they got tall and tippy and there were product liability suits. Okay? Because the idea, see, see the thinking here is if I make that front wheel very big, then I can go further in each revolution. Okay? You can see a human mind kind of grappling with this problem. But now 70 years, 60 years have passed. And finally, some idiot savant, uh, you know, just 15 years before the Wright brothers, invents a bicycle similar to what you're driving today. And when you look at the cars we're driving, you have to say to yourself, how is it, how can it be that the car I'm driving today is no more efficient than the ones Henry Ford was building uh, 90 years ago? How is that possible? You know, we know how to do this. We know, this is a senator, a Republican senator. You know? <laughs> we know how to do this, and we are going to have to do it. We have to do it. It's inevitable. And the sooner we get started, the more likely it is that we will preserve prosperity. 
we have to save coal-fired electricity. One of these compact fluorescent lights saves 500 pounds of coal, 1,000 pounds of greenhouse gases, saves you $35 on your electric bill. We're going to be planting wind turbines like they were trees. We've got to do this. We've got to scale global wind production up 50-fold in five decades. Not five-fold, but 50-fold. We've got to scale up global solar production 700-fold. Not seven-fold, 700-fold. Now, to do any of this, I've been arguing. I've just got a few, I, I, I just have a few more slides. To do any of this, we need a software upgrade, okay? We're running version, you know, living like gods 1.0. We need a software upgrade. This wealth of energy we've had in this country has made us really dumb. You know, it's made us stupid when it comes to energy. And it's made us spoiled. And I worry about this because without this software upgrade and speaking truth to power, none of the things we need to do are going to happen in time. They will happen. They're inevitable, but they won't happen in time. So here is, here is another U.S. senator speaking uh, the sense to the, this idea of entitlement. Um, and the entitlement, actually, it's the next slide, I think. The entitlement comes, one historian has argued, I think this is true, a mentality of abundance. We had the best soils in North America, the best forests, a, a, a landscape teeming with wild animals, a rivers. We had it all here. It was a virgin continent. Okay, we had to kill 10 million Native Americans, and then it was a virgin continent. But it was, it was loaded up with resources. And, and so we have this sense that we are a chosen people with a Western destiny and we're entitled. I was on a drilling rig um, out in the Piance Basin, and, and this came home to me in a bumper sticker on this drilling rig. I love this, because this is part of the genius of America. I love this bumper sticker. It said, Earth first, we will drill the other planets later. <laughs> now, that is, that is who we are. That's, that's the optimistic thing. That, that's really an attribute that we have. You know, it's what enabled us to go to the moon and do some of the other things that we've done. Um, this is one of the brilliant Nobel chemists. This guy died recently. He has, this is interesting, he has what we're running on the left, is on the left, that's current, and this is what we need by 2050. This is fascinating to me because solar and wind and these other renewables right now are less than 1%. And, and the only way that he could solve this problem himself, a guy named Rick Smalley, he, he concluded that we needed these 10 miracles and we wouldn't find them unless we went looking for them. Powered flight was a miracle. He thinks that, that uh, biotech and, and nanotechnology and some of these other emerging sciences could give us much cheaper photovoltaics, uh, breakthroughs in transmission, breakthroughs in biofuels, all these areas. We need breakthroughs in all those areas to solve this problem. He's dead now, this guy. But he spent the last three years of his life asking, what will be the basis of prosperity? You know, what, what makes our economy grow is energy. And, and Americans are used to going to the gas tank. And when they put that hose in their 
a tank, and when I do it, I want to get gas out of it. And when I turn the light switch on, I want the lights to go on, and I don't want somebody to tell me I've got to change my way of living to satisfy them, because this is America, and this is something we've worked our way into, and the American people are entitled to it, and if we're going to improve our standard of living, you have to consume more energy. Thank you. Okay, there's a, there'll be a bowl of suicide pills out on the table as you, <laughs> as you leave. But, but this, this is the software upgrade, okay? This, that attitude, you know, that attitude, that's an endless series of wars in the Persian Gulf. You know, that attitude just carries you somewhere. That, you know, that we don't want to go there. But there's a more optimistic thing happening, and I think people are beginning in Washington, both parties are beginning to understand that all of these things are tied together. There's a beautiful novella set in Montana about fly fishing, Norman McLean's book. He says, eventually all things merge together and become one, and a river runs through it. And I've been arguing the river is energy now. That's what, you know, this is it. This is the challenge. If you solve the energy challenge, Rick Smalley argued, you solve all other challenges, water, agri agriculture, poverty, war, terrorism. They all go away. That's Sue Boy. I think he understood, and I think Alan Greenspan was beginning to understand this idea. Energy is the original currency. And if that's true, then energy waste puts prosperity at risk. And we've got to do all of these things in this last paragraph. We've had a land ethic in the United States for about 150 years. That's when Yellowstone started, Yellowstone National Park. And we've always had a water ethic in, in the West, at least. But energy ethic? No, we've been living like gods. And so we need to begin developing this. I want to end just with, with three more slides. I think there are three slides here, four slides. When the, Wright brothers, when the Wright brothers went to Kitty Hawk the first time, they took these kites down there. And the kites did not perform the way that the books, the textbooks said they should because the wing shape was wrong. And so they went back and upstairs in the bike shop, they built a wind tunnel. Here's the wind tunnel. You're looking in one end of it. And that winter, they very meticulously pounded out wing shapes, a hundred different wing shapes, looking for the right curvature, width to length ratio. What was the proper shape of a wing? They had raptor wings of hawks and buzzards. They were, they were studying this. Okay, neither one of these guys went to college. And inside the wind tunnel, they built a little analog measuring device, an analog computer. That's it on the right. And it's built out of used hacksaw blades and bicycle spokes. And they tested these wing shapes. This is one of the wing shapes, vertical on the top. Very, very cunning, these guys. And this shape, this is the shape. Okay, they were asking themselves, if we want to fly, we have to have an efficient wing shape. If we want to go long distances, we have to have an efficient wing shape. We have to outwit friction. We have to understand this energy challenge that they were facing. 
And when you get on a Boeing today, the wings you're flying on within a few percentage points are just what they figured out upstairs in the bike shop a century ago. Now, Boeing understands that efficiency has got to be the key of everything we do going ahead. And so this new plane, you know, 20% more seat miles per, per gallon of jet fuel, it's lighter, the engines are more powerful and also more fuel efficient. The whole thing's been redesigned. And so we have to redesign our entire, you know, working infrastructure in the United States. It's the work of generations, but we have no choice. My last slide. I want to talk to young people. I think I don't know where the future is going. Um, and I don't know how we've raised you, kind of what you think the future is going to be like. You know, maybe we're all going to go live out in space. You know, cloning didn't work out here like we were hoping it would in this picture. But, um, you know, the idea is that we were destined to go live in the stars somewhere. Maybe that's one future. But I have been telling my kids, I, I think we're... It's going to be a fascinating ride, and it's going to have some potholes. You know, your life is going to be an adventure, and you're going to need every intellectual strength you can develop. But you're also going to need a lot of practical skills, is my sense of it. You know, you could start by learning how to brew beer in the bathtub. You know, start, I, I, I mean, I've been, I, I, I think, you're going to need to know practical things also to make your way through the future. I think the future is going to be very unlike anything, any of the stories or the fairy tales that we've been sharing with you um, as you've grown up. You're alive at a special moment. I mean, oh, to be 20 again. I mean, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful time. Um, get good at stuff, and it doesn't really matter what the stuff is, poetry or music or banjo or cooking or midwifery or, or welding or software or uh, movie making. Get good at stuff that you can, that, that find stuff that intrigues you and master it because you're going to need those skills as time goes on. Thanks so much.